want to add my welcome to Sam's and to Bronte's and say it's good to, to be here this morning with, with you. I think it's entirely appropriate that if you're playing uh, Jesus, that you would weep. Um, twice in the scripture, Jesus weeps. Once as he's outside of Jerusalem and he thinks about how they've rejected an offer of grace because they don't understand the platform on which it's delivered. And another time as he stands at the side of a grave and he looks at how sin has just broken and and destroyed everything. And so Jesus weeps over what sin does to our hearts and to our bodies. And so it's a, I think, character role play there. Bruce was great. Um, Good stuff. I just want to touch in before we start on... uh, Bronte uh, let us know that we are doing a church-wide survey. Uh, It's coming up. You will get it. If you are on our church email list, you will get this survey uh, as an email from us. So, uh, And it will take you to a a website and it will ask you questions about how you feel this church uh, is serving you uh, meeting your needs, if you like, for want of a better expression, and that it's your opportunity to begin a, a, a conversation with us about how you want to shape and mould this church. That information will come back to people who understand surveys, not me. Uh, the BUV gather it and they interpret it and they take it all. And then flowing out of that, coming soon, will be some forums that look at the information you give us and then how we, how we interpret that and how we respond with that and how we uh, walk with you in making this church the church that it needs to be, that you would like to see it become, but ultimately uh, what the Word of God directs it to. So, hey, don't miss that. Uh, go to your computer. The email will come out if it hasn't already. Look for it and go in and fill out the survey. If you don't have an email address, or if we don't have your email address, uh, come and give it to us. But if you're like um, still rolling with pens and paper, uh, come and see us too because we can get some, uh, some what do you call them, old school paper copies of it, that kind of thing. Hard copy, yeah, not a digital one. Hey, let's pray and then uh, we'll, we'll get into this psalm this morning. Lord, we thank you. We want to give thanks, as, as, as Josh has said to you, the, this... Uh, ability to come in and gather together as your people. Uh, We give you thanks for your grace in our lives and and how we come and and we're nurtured and we're encouraged uh, by each other. We're nurtured and we're encouraged as we open your word uh, and it brings life and truth to us. Uh, This morning we pray that your spirit would uh, guide us through this passage and then it would convict our hearts in ways that warm them uh, with affection for you. So Lord, uh, Journey with us, be with us now as we, we look into your word this morning. Um, I don't know, perhaps you are, but if you are a, a fan of American sports, which uh, historically I am not, but um, since becoming a chaplain at a basketball uh, team, at a basketball club, the natural kind of consequence of that, because basketball is an American sport, uh, so to speak, uh, you, you, you become involved in and, and you and take interest in conversations around basketball and then, and then it's other like the NFL and all these other American sports that go on. So I've become interested in these sports. So I know that tomorrow the Los Angeles uh, Rams are taking on the England Patriots. 
And I'm, I'm with the Patriots because I like dynasties, so uh, that's what I'm hoping. Uh, Super Bowl 53, we'll, we'll see the Patriots bring home yet another, uh, I don't know what they call like a ring, I think they call it. And that if that happens, that Tom Brady and, and Bill uh, Bilicek will become perhaps sports most or sporting's greatest combination. Uh, Tom Brady's the quarterback and Bill Bilicek, great name, is the head coach. And if they can pull off yet another Super Bowl, they're going to become potentially one of the greatest sporting combinations. I would never have known that unless and that you know, I'd started taking interest in basketball. They may even rival other sporting combinations like uh, Anz Christou and Anthony Kudafidis. We don't know whether they'll get into that kind of air, but, but, but maybe. But if you spend a bit of time watching uh, American sport, particularly if... Uh, particularly when or, or a team or an individual encounters success or, or victory, you will eventually and unavoidably hear God being thanked for that success. Hear God being invoked for, for, for their good fortune. Baseball players point to the heavens when they hit a home run. NFL players, they, they, they kneel, they take a knee and they, they pray in the end zone after scoring a touchdown. Competitors routinely thank Jesus along with their sponsors in, in, in after-game interviews. The prevalence of God being thanked for their good fortunes and their success of, a, of the individual or of a team has uh, led to the C, CNN writer, John Blake, to write an article called when did god become a sports fan when did god uh need as just said somebody to to just you know pump up his tires and take interest in him the tipping point uh for for the this for blake was after rich franklin now rich frank franklin i don't know him i had to google him he is a mixed martial arts guy, cage fighting, UCF sort of dude, champion actually. And just after he'd uh, knocked out his opponent, just kicked him in the head. It's pretty cool. Uh, no, it's not. Uh, I watched the YouTube. And, and flattened him. He took to the ring mic and faced the roaring crowd. Crowd's going nuts. And he says this. I want to say thanks to God. All praise to him. And he bowed and he folded his hands and he prayed as his opponent, who was missing a few teeth and a little groggy, got taken out of the, out of the cage there. Blake asks the question, when? when? When did God become a fan of sports? When did God need to be recognized for the achievements of athletes? William J. Baker, author of a book called Playing With God, a professing Christian, himself makes the observation uh, he makes this observation, rightly or wrongly. Uh, it's if from his perspective. I don't fully share it. But he says this, that athletes who publicly thank God for victory are often calling more attention to themselves than their faith, selling their goodness, selling their brand, rather than the goodness of God. Now, I'm not seeking to diminish, as I said, the sincerity of any Christian athlete uh, who thanks God. I, I, can't, I know some Christian athletes, some high-profile Christian athletes, and their window to give thanks is small. It's limited. So when it's there, they like to take the opportunity. Um, so, you know, they only get these little sound bites to give them. However, 
with such, uh, such critique, with such skepticism, if you like, around giving thanks for, to God for the outcomes in your life, how is it that we avoid being misinterpreted? How is it that we avoid uh, not being taken as sincere when we give thanks? Like we're just going through the motions, like this is just something we do. It's, it's part of the promo pack. Certainly here in Australia, uh, giving thanks to God is not just viewed with eye rolls of, you know, like, oh, here we go again, but is actually seen as intrusive as offensive to the sensibilities of our progressive left. How do we give thanks to God in a way that actually causes culture to stop and to question why it is that they think and feel that God should not be given thanks for um, the good things, the rich things in our lives? Our psalm today is attributed to David, and it's a psalm of thanksgiving. It's written to appropriately express thanks to God due to outcomes of situations and events in our lives. Uh, it's written to give, appropriately give uh, expression to answered prayer in our lives. Now, the exact event of, of the circumstance or the exact event that led to the writing of this psalm is not known. However, commentators and, and historians, uh, they speculate that David wrote this psalm of thanksgiving due to becoming the king of a united Israel. We can read about those kind of things, that, that transition, that event in 2 Samuel chapter sort of 5 through to 8 and in there. The surrounding nations and, and that had, had tried their hardest, whether they did it knowingly, whether they did it unknowingly, to thwart God's promise. David had at some point uh, called out, prayed to God in relationship to his promise, in relationship to the promise that David would one day take the throne of Israel, that he would become Israel's king. Now God has established his promise in David. Now David sits on the throne of a united Israel. That's what they speculate, that's what they think. And, you know, it certainly is a plausible and a, a worthy event for David to write a psalm of giving thanks about it. certainly is but i i, I kind of like it that we don't actually know the event i think it's more appropriate that we don't actually know the exact event because that keeps our focus on god and off david on the activity of god and not on the good fortune of david david in this psalm lays down um Three elements, I think, which we can use, which we can frame our own thanksgiving to God in so that we can avoid our thanksgiving being seen as trite, as, as glib, as, as just mere tokenism and, and avoid, hopefully, critique, negative critique around that. First uh, thing that David lays down or, or we find in this psalm is that Thanksgiving must glorify God's name. The object of our thanks should be God over and above our provision or our, or our victory here. We should not kind of in our thanksgiving kind of subtly you know, write ourselves in to the story as the heroes of the story. But we should always keep uh, our thanksgiving focused on God. So having said that though... It should never be disconnected from our experience of God's favor in our life. Glorifying God is never devoid of, 
of the of the personal practice and emotion of the one giving thanks, of the one giving praise. It is never a clinical thing, but a deeply passionate thing, a passionate overflow of thanks in boldness and in humility to make much of God, to make much of His faithfulness to us in which David had placed his trust through prayer, in which you and I might place our trust in through prayer. David begins, I give you thanks, O Lord, with my whole heart. Thanksgiving is not just an intellectual thing. It's not just a a spoken word, but a complete act of worship. Thanksgiving is the expression of the heart's passion towards God. However it is that the psalmist gives thanks, he does it with his whole heart. Whether it's through prayer, whether it's through music and singing, whether it's in the offerings that he brings, it's no tame thing. David can hardly contain himself. There's a a boldness to his praise as he seeks to make much of God. He's not timid. He's not timid in his expression and he's not timid in his approach to God. He doesn't care uh, if people see, if people wish to make comment or notice what he's doing. The passion of his heart is that God would be praised. Thanksgiving that glorifies God has passion, has boldness about it. It's bold before people and it's also bold before God. He's not looking over his shoulder wondering if the people in the church are thinking, isn't isn't he odd, isn't she odd for, for singing with such passion there? Or neither is David kind of slinking up to the, to, to the presence of God like he doesn't deserve to be there. Thanksgiving that glorifies God flows from a heart unfettered and unashamed. Secondly, Thanksgiving that glorifies God is persistent. It's not shut down or or beaten down or or pushed into a corner by the pervading culture or public opinion. Before the gods, I sing your praise, David says. The Bible uses words like gods to describe various entities that have been ascribed with uh, spiritual or deistic uh, qualities by culture and religious practice. They are not even remotely uh, equal with the Lord, with God, but their influence and their accept and, and their acceptance in culture is acknowledged in Scripture. It's not hidden. It's not denied. And David says, "I'll give thanks specifically to the Lord. I will single God out as the only one deserving of thanks, despite the pervading culture that may deny God, that may mock God as such a line of thought." Thanksgiving to, that glorifies God is a thanksgiving that persists amongst cultures and, and voices that deny that it should take place, that deny its credibility. It persists despite opposing ideas and influences. Thirdly, thanksgiving that glorifies God changes one's posture. Even though there is a boldness and a passion in thanksgiving, it is balanced with humility and awe. I bow down to your holy temple, David says. The temple is the location of God's presence on earth amidst his people. It's it's where God 
manifests himself, where he makes his activity known amongst his people. David is saying, I humble myself. I bow down in thanks before a God who is personally present, a God who is in our midst. The temple in David's day was actually the tent of meeting. It's not Solomon's temple. Nevertheless, David conveys that while there is boldness in our thanksgiving, while there's passion, while there's unrestrained joy, there is no room for self-indulgence. There is no room for pride. Thanksgiving has a posture of humility. Thanksgiving has a posture of awe. And the object of this thanksgiving, this passion, this persistence, this changed posture is God's name and God's reputation, who he is and, and what he does and has done. God's name is the equivalent to his, uh, his revealed nature and how we experience it, how he's made himself known, his character has been known, the activity that he does in redemptive salvation and it's described here with such words as unfailing or steadfast love and your faithfulness or your loyalty. Often these are summarized in the expression, the little Hebrew word, the hesed of God. Hesed is his covenantal love, faithfulness to his people. The content of our passion that fuels our heart is the experience of the hesed of God. The enabling of our persistence, our ability to give thanks in, in public, whether in church or out in the street or, or work or wherever, is the hesed of God. The transforming of our posture, the humbling of our heart is done by the hesed of God. It, it melts us. God is faithful to his promises, his goodness to his people. He's loyal to, to his word. He's answering of our prayers. David knew that he had a God of Hesed. So rather than worry more, rather than work harder at trying to make sure that he kind of made sure that the promises of God came about, he just prayed longer. He just trusted deeper. In his distress, he calls out. He prayed. And at one level, as we read this psalm, God answers him right then and there. There's something in this prayer where he, he knows God has heard it, whether it's theological understanding or an emotional uh, moment. He knows God has answered him. Our thanksgiving should be about making much of God, giving glory to God in prayer, in music, in singing, in preaching, watering our plants or, or, or doing our job or whatever it is that we encounter Him in. Not because He's a fan, not because He needs us to be giving thanks to Him like He needs His tires pumped up, but because He deserves it. David focuses on the attributes of God as the object of his thanks, not so much the, the blessing that he had come into. A little bit of caution needs to be taken here as we apply this psalm to our lives. Might be obvious to you, might not, but we are not the unique figure of redemptive history that David is. So there are certain aspects that only apply to him in his life. God has uniquely promised certain outcomes uh, to David that you and I are simply not promised. 
like the establishing of a royal line for the Messiah, which would lead in part uh, through uh, redemptive history to see various kings around the place recognize God's hand, God's work in human history. They would see this promise unfolding. And they, in turn, would give glory to God for it. There would be a witnessing to God's promise. We, we see that. There's a king, Harim, in 2 Samuel 5, and a king, uh, Toy, in 2 Samuel 8, 9. They give thanks. They recognize that it is God who is acting and done these things on David's behalf. David's pr- prayer was not merely about his throne, but that, he, that in his throne, God would establish his word and make known his promise before a watching world. Ultimately, and in the end, all kings, all rulers, all powers will give thanks to fulfilled promises that God establishes uh, through, through the beginning of this redemptive story. Salvation for the lost. Nevertheless, our lives, experience of the goodness of God and he has said for us, can be given thanks for. We, we might not be receiving a, a special and unique role in redemptive history, but we are all uh, the benefactors, the receivers of the grace of Jesus and his work in our lives. As John famously points out in his gospel, um, for in this for for in this way God so loved the world that he gave sent his only son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life for God did not send his son to condemn the world we did that in the garden of eden we brought condemnation on ourselves but God sends his son in order that the world might be saved through him the promises of God that get applied to the believer because of Jesus are things like our ability to uh, be convicted of our sin and not crushed by them. Then the fact that we are forgiven of our sins because of Jesus, freedom from sin, a new quality of life that is eternal that Bruce and Glennis spoke of this morning during communion. Intimacy with God, fellowship with God is another fulfilled promise that we can give thanks for because of Jesus. The enabling presence of His Holy Spirit to live in joyful agreement with God, to live in joyful obedience with God. Security of a restored world in which we will eventually live and worship in. Comfort for the now as we experience the dying throes of sin. All David got was a troublesome crown that brought him nothing but hardship. And yet he gives thanks with his whole heart to God. We consider the lists of things that have come into our lives when God interrupts our lives with his grace found in Jesus. Our response should be thanksgiving that is passionate, thanksgiving that is persistent, thanksgiving that is humbled with awe. But this thankfulness should not be just a private matter. It shouldn't just be confined to merely our hearts or even within this room here. It should be part of our interaction with the world. We should be able to articulate 
uh, why we're thankful, why so much passion, why so much persistence, why uh, we are so humbled in awe by it. There should be a mixture of boldness and humility in our own expression of thanksgiving. When someone asks us, you know, how can you be thankful? Why are you not broken? We can respond with, well, because of greater promises that I have encountered in my life. We can respond with, because there is a more satisfying desire that consumes my heart. The Lord is my portion, as we saw last week, as we read last week in our lament psalm. Thanksgiving is not just for a particular time or place like a church, but it's all of life. And it should bear witness to those around us uh, of our own ongoing experience of God's kindness, of God's faithfulness, an answer to prayer. That is the very soul of our hope. That is the very um, comfort of, of our distress at times. Bold and humble thanksgiving should stop people in their tracks to inquire about the God that inspires this response. How does our world, how does your world of thanksgiving speak to those around you? Finally, the last point is thanksgiving affirms confidence in God's purpose and promise. Finally, thanksgiving is the activity through which we affirm in ourselves uh, our confidence in God's promise and, and, and His purposes. When we give thanks to God, we're actually uh, recalibrating our hearts to the goodness of God in our lives. We're reminding ourselves, we're, we're speaking to ourselves that He is faithful. We're not just merely witnessing to those around us, but we are affirming our own faith and God's care of it. David gives thanks that God is mindful of the lowly and of the proud. No one escapes the eye of the Lord. But in his dealings with them, they encounter a great reversal. The proud who are often pictured as gaining their place in life at the expense of the vulnerable, at the expense of the lowly, are held to account. God is pictured as the one who defends the rights, who defends the rights of the righteous against the schemes of the wicked. God preserves and delivers the life of the humble heart, the heart that is persistent and passionate in its faithfulness to God. The wicked despise these people. The wicked disregard these people. They they make the way of the faithful hard, troublesome. And the faithful feel lowly. But God has drawn near to the lowly. He holds them in regard. He takes notice of their prayers. God uh, is their rod and their staff as we read in Psalm 23. He's the master shepherd who comforts the soul. You get this great image that he gives rest. He, he you know, in green pastures, he brings peace, uh, lays them down beside still waters. He leads us in paths of righteousness. He's involved in our lives. We are not merely left to do these things in our own strength. And he does all of this. If you read verse 3 of Psalm 23, for his name's sake. That is the most important verse in that psalm. Though the lowly, through the lowly, God is shown as powerful. He is the defender of the weak. He is the one who comforts those in need. 
He gives regard to the lowly. That is, he takes special notice of them so he can affirm his name in their hearts so that they can trust in his promises. We have a God that oversees all of creation and yet is mindful of the lowly. That they would experience his riches, that they would encounter his goodness, that they would be the recipients of his promises. He stoops down to their aid. He's involved in their lives. As Isaiah says in Isaiah 40, Do you not know? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He will not grow tired or weary in his understanding. No one can fathom. He gives strength to the weary. He increases the power of the weak. Even youths grow tired and weary. Young men will stumble and fall. But those whose hope is in the Lord will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles, which is a little reference to the Exodus. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not grow faint. God uh, draws near to the lowly, to the broken, to those in need. The ultimate proof of this is the incarnation of Jesus. He becomes poor that we might become rich. He becomes a servant that we might be set free. He becomes an outcast that we might be welcomed. He becomes sin, as we saw this morning that we might become righteous, that we might be clothed in a robe that represents the character and the position of Jesus before the Father. A God who made a promise in Genesis 3, affirms it in Abraham and then sets it on its course in David and completes it in Jesus, is a God of steadfast, enduring love, for his people, for the lost, for the lowly. A God who answers prayers of those who pray in accordance to his promise. This is why it's right to give thanks. Give thanks to the Lord. His love endures forever. That love is a promise that became flesh in Jesus and it pursues you. It pursues me. The question is, has it changed your posture? Has it changed the position of your heart from, from pride to humility? Has it fueled a greater passion in your heart? Has it captured your heart? Has it warmed your heart with affection for God over and above the things of this world? Has it filled you with a boldness that holds you in place even when culture swells against it? If it has then give thanks.